Welcome, welcome, welcome to this very special bonus episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and we're really excited to bring you the audio from the November 8th, 2021 debate between Clark Neely of the Cato Institute and our very own Professor Richard Alpert on the ethics of plea bargaining. Criminal Law Society co-hosted this with the Federalist Society, uh, and we had a really great discussion about plea bargaining. So without further ado, here's the audio from the debate. Uh, and so without further ado, let's introduce our speakers for the night. First is Clark Neely. He is the Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. His areas of interest include constitutional law, judicial engagement, coercive plea bargaining, police accountability, and gun rights. Neely served as co-counsel in District of Columbia versus Heller, in which the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun. Neely received his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Texas at Austin, and he is the author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. And to introduce Professor Albert, I'll invite up Chris Finlove, President of the Criminal Law Society. Thanks, Jackson. Professor Richard Alpert is an adjunct professor here at Baylor Law, teaching Texas criminal practice and procedure, the Baylor Criminal Law Boot Camp in Capstone. Before coming to Baylor, he was a prosecutor in Tarrant County, which is Fort Worth, for almost 30 years, spending 20 of those years as chief of the misdemeanor division. He's tried over 155 jury trials and was the 2009 State Bar of Texas Prosecutor of the Year. He also received his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Texas at Austin, and has spoken at over 500 seminars, teaching prosecutors, judges, defense lawyers, law enforcement, medical personnel, and scientists on all aspects of trial advocacy, with an emphasis on investigation and trying of DWI and intox manslaughter cases. Thank you, Chris. So how this is gonna to work tonight is that um, each of our debaters will give a 15-minute presentation, um, then each will have five minutes to respond as a rebuttal, and then we'll open it up to all of you for 15 minutes of questions. So let's go ahead and get going. Clark. Well, give yourselves a pat in the back. We were just talking about how um, unusual it must be uh, to get this many people to come to an event. Uh, when you could be doing other things, uh, like studying or drinking a beer. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's great to see you all, I and mean, I'm really looking forward to this event. Um, I want to thank Jackson and Kristen for the warm welcome, and Richard for um, participating in the event. Uh, I think it's a great topic. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I, I'll start by saying this. Uh, one of my best friends is a moral philosopher uh, at the College of New Jersey, and I've taught with him a bunch of times, and, and he has something that he often starts his, his lectures with, which I think is just wonderful. Um, he's also about six foot five, and he's kind of a goofy Scottish guy, so he does it with a Scottish accent, which I will not try to uh, reproduce. But uh, what he says is, um, I have lots of beliefs. I know that some of them are wrong, but I don't know which ones. And, um, and I think it's rather profound, uh, because that's true of all of us. Um, I mean, not you, obviously, but, you know, the other people in this room. <laughs> um, and it's, it's you know, it's, it's kind of humbling to, to realize that it's, it's uh, perfectly fine and even laudable to have uh, strong convictions. Um, and I think, you know, if you manage to go through your entire life without having any convictions, it's, uh, I would say, kind of life wasted, frankly. Um, but it's also important to have the humility 
um, uh, to realize that, that some of your convictions, even some of your very strongly held convictions may be wrong. Uh, and so I think that's one of the great uh, virtues of, ha of having an event like this. Um, so with that said, uh, I, will, I will sort of kind of really quickly front load um, my view about plea bargaining. Um, and it's this, I think plea bargaining uh, has become one of the worst pathologies in a profoundly pathological criminal justice system. Uh, as the Supreme Court itself has recognized, ours is no longer a system of trials, it is a system of pleas. Pleas were unknown at the founding. They are nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. That doesn't necessarily make them unconstitutional, and I don't argue that they are categorically unconstitutional, um, except maybe in Texas, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, but I'm here really to talk about plea bargaining, not just in Texas, but really as a kind of a concept. Um, and the basic problem, as I see it with plea bargaining, um, is that it, it represents what I will call an extra constitutional, not necessarily unconstitutional, but an extra constitutional shortcut for making what is arguably one of the most or perhaps the most important determination that the government can make, which is whether you are or, or are not guilty of a crime. Why is that so important? And before I give you the answer to that question, I want to point something out. If you look at the Bill of Rights, which I strongly encourage you to do, you will notice that about half of it is devoted to criminal procedure. And most of that is about criminal jury trials specifically. The founders were absolutely laser focused on the process for adjudicating criminal charges. And the process they chose, wisely in my view, is the one that emerged through more than eight centuries of Anglo-American history. The jury trial in our tradition goes back to before the Magna Carta. It represents the accumulated wisdom of countless generations that this is the appropriate way to adjudicate criminal charges. And why is that so important? Because in our system, the government may not punish you until you have been convicted of a crime. Now, we know they do anyway, but they're not supposed to. Believe me, if they put you in Rikers Island, you're going to be punished. Um, but, but technically, the government has to obtain a criminal conviction before they can punish you. And throughout history, when tyrants have wanted to oppress the people, they use the criminal justice system to do it. Even Joseph Stalin, who was in charge of the most powerful uh, uh, secret police force the world has ever known. I was a Russian major at UT, I'm sorry, but I was. Um, and I've been to the Soviet Union. I know what it's like there. But even Stalin, arguably the most powerful man in the world for decades, didn't just go up to his political opponents and put a bullet in their head. I mean, once in a while. But what he preferred, what he preferred was a trial. Why? He wanted the veneer of legitimacy. He wanted people to look and say, well, you know, I got a trial. Must have been, you know, must have been a trick. Right? So the founders understood that the ability to prosecute and convict citizens can be a tool of tyranny and oppression. And they built into the Constitution the most powerful safeguard that they could come up with to prevent that from happening. And it's this, it is a criminal jury trial. Why is it so powerful? Because it ensures that before the government can declare somebody guilty of a crime and impose punishment, they have to go through 12 people, normally, um, who have been drawn from the community, are not paid by the government, and have no dog in the fight. 
They're not some road-wearing government employee. And they don't have a stake in the fight. That's why the Sixth Amendment says an impartial jury. So I believe very strongly that the founders of this country gave a tremendous amount of thought and determined that when you're doing something as high stakes as determining whether or not someone is guilty of a crime, which is the only condition that enables the government to impose punishment, you have to be incredibly careful. And there is only one institution uh, that, they, that they considered uh, adequate to this task, and it is the criminal jury trial. Um, I would argue that the criminal jury trial was designed to be the beating heart of our constitution. Citizen participation lies at the very heart of the administration of criminal justice. And what we've done is we've just reached right into the system, grabbed that heart and ripped it out. 95% of all criminal convictions today are obtained through not, through, not through constitutional prescribed jury trials, but through guilty pleas. In the federal system, it's even higher, 97.4%. And you can even look at it broken down by circuits. And here in the Fifth Circuit, guess what? They're closing in on 100%. It's about 98.9% of 10 circuits, a little bit ahead, they're at 99%. What would you think of a country where 100% of people pled guilty when charged with a crime? Would you have a sort of a sense of what kind of country that probably is? Because I sure would. Now let's talk about the distinction between the idealized version of plea bargaining. That's the one you're supposed to believe is how it works, right? The person is given a bargain or a benefit. It's Chris, right? It's Chris. Chris, I'm sorry, Chris. Even better. <laughs> um, you know, Chris uh, gets caught, you know, he's selling a particular plant that he grew in his backyard and tends to stimulate the appetite, maybe to feel a little giggly. That's still not supposed to be selling that, right? Um, and he's looking at whatever, two years, you know. And I, as a prosecutor, say, well, you know, save everybody the trouble and expense of a jury trial and don't make 12 people take time away from their families and jobs to give you a little bit of time off. What do you think? Right? Well, Probably looks pretty good, right? That's the idealized version of plea bargain. And it's not how it always works. In fact, I don't think it's how it usually works. Ask yourself the following question. Think about how incredibly valuable a jury trial is to a defendant in a criminal case, whether they're guilty or innocent. The prosecution carries all these burdens. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury. That's not easy, or it's not supposed to be, right? The prosecution drops the ball once and the case is over. A break in the chain of custody if it's a drug trial or a police officer who doesn't testify credibly, believe it or not, that happens. Um, and the whole case is over because at every turn, uh, the procedure is set up um, to favor false acquittals, much more than false convictions. That's the so-called Blackstonian ratio, better than 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man be convicted. Our system is optimized to protect against uh, false convictions. Um, and plea bargaining is optimized for one thing and one thing only, efficiency, at the sake of every other constitutional value. And let me assure you, friends, that is not the hierarchy that the founders of this country chose, not in a million years. Um, so how does plea bargaining really work in real life? In my judgment, the way it works in real life is that most prosecutors understand that they are under enormous pressure not simply to get a conviction, but to get a conviction in a particular way, and that's through a guilty plea. Think about it this way. Imagine you're a federal prosecutor, and half of your cases are going to trial. Your colleagues are getting 90% of their cases to plead out, but half of yours are going to trial. Do you suppose you're going to have an unpleasant conversation with your supervisor at some point? Yeah, you are. You know why? Because your supervisor is going to have an unpleasant conversation with the chief judge of that district 
Who's going to want to know? What is the deal with this prosecutor who can't get people to plead guilty? I have a huge caseload and I'm in trial constantly because this person somehow of all your prosecutors can't get people to plead guilty. I don't have time for this. Um, and once you have a culture, once you have an institutional attitude that virtually anybody can be induced to plead guilty with the application of enough pressure, guess what you have to do as a prosecutor? Apply that pressure. Let's talk about some of the forms of pressure that prosecutors have available to them that the courts have deemed to be permissible. Point one, locking people up pre-trial. Has anybody ever read anything about Rikers Island? It is hell on earth. Um, and uh, people I've talked to who've had clients like the walk up in Rikers Island will tell you that the moment one of their clients gets an offer that enables them to get out of Rikers Island, they will take it. It doesn't matter whether they're guilty, they're innocent, or anything else, whatever gets them out of Rikers Island. And actually, there's empirical literature that indicates that um, when people are locked up pretrial, it significantly increases uh, the odds that they will ultimately plead guilty. So it's a very effective uh, lever. Um, it makes it, it it's, a, it's a crappy place to be. Um, jails tend to be actually dirtier and more dangerous than prisons because they're less professionally run. Um, it's very difficult to work with your counsel. Um, you don't have access to, uh, oh yeah, let me just get you that number of the guy you know, that I was, I was at the party with that night when I my alibi. Nope. Right? Um, it, it, it impairs your ability uh, to, um, uh, to defend yourself. Um, and I don't have time to go through all the course of numbers, so I'll hit the highlights. Um, so charge stacking. Is significant. So uh, maybe a uh, uh, defendant grabs a pair of sneakers, you know, from the from the store and uh, running, you know, out, uh, out the door, kind of pushes the security guard to the side. Well, that's shoplifting, but you could charge it as a robbery because technically if you used some force to get out, um, you don't really need the robbery conviction. You're not even looking for the robbery conviction, but man, that 10-year mandatory minimum sure uh, adds up to some additional leverage if all you really want uh, is the shoplifting, you're probably going to get it. Um, the two that I will focus on really quickly because they're, I find them the most shocking. First is called the trial penalty. And this is the differential between the punishment that you will receive if you exercise the right to trial and lose versus the punishment you'll get if you agree to waive your constitutional right to a trial and plead guilty. Has anybody heard of the varsity blues prosecutions up in Boston? This is the Hollywood celebrities who cheated their way into, uh, got their kids into schools like USC. I don't want you to do that or whatever. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, so they engage in a wide range of conduct. Some of them are really gross. Like they hire people to go and take the SAT for their kid. Fine, I don't care. Put that lock that person up. But some of the other defendants, um, all they really did was cut an unusually large check. And I mean, that's, you know, I mean, say what you want about it. It's maybe not, it's kind of unseemly, but it's not a crime. Um, what's been happening in those cases, and you can go and look this up, you can read it in the papers. <clears throat> the standard plea offer for these defendants in the Varsity Blues uh, investigation is two months. Two months. But the prosecutor has been telling people, but if you don't take that plea offer, I'm going to go back and I'm going to reindict you as a, as a conspirator on a conspiracy charge. And that'll be 20 years. I'm here to tell you, friends, I have two kids, an eight-year-old son, six-year-old daughter. If the federal government charged me, me that exposed me to a 20-year prison sentence and then offered me two months, I would sign whatever they put in front of me. Wouldn't even read it. For all I know, that indictment could say that I invented a time machine and went back in time and used Charles Lindbergh's kidnap baby to beat Abraham Lincoln to death outside. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I'm not going to let my kids grow up without a father. And I'm not going to risk it. I've tried uh, civil jury trials, and I know that funny things can happen, except they're not funny when it's a criminal trial. Um, the, the last point I wanted to touch on, and I just could not believe this, 
when I read that, that not only is this permissible, six federal circuit court of appeals have signed off on what I'm about to describe to you. I'm told by my friends uh, who do uh, white collar defense, at least in the federal system, that this is absolutely routine. Um, and it's threatening family members to exert big leverage. Um, does anybody's family have a small business? Anybody have a small business? Yes, sir, what's your name? Jake. Jake? Yes, sir. I'd like to role play with you. May I do that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Jake, what, what kind of family, small business does your family have? Uh, land restoration. Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, so I'm, let's say I'm, a, I'm a federal prosecutor, and um, I've got you on some malfeasance, but you won't be guilty, so I'm getting real frustrated. And I say, Jake, uh, uh, your dad has a tree restoration business, doesn't he? Sure. Now it's just over there. And I tell you, man, some of the guys who work with me don't look like they're from this country. So I need some checking. It turns out, you know what? They're not from this country. Did you ever know that's a federal offense? Jake, your dad's going to do real well in federal prison to you. <laughs> It's hard to get medicine there. You know, he's not as fried as he used to be. I don't think he's going to be able to run from the shower too fast. <laughs> 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 now, what were we talking about? You were going to be guilty of something, weren't you? I mean, I could lay out your dad if you wanted, and believe it or not, this is not an exaggeration. This is a conversation that happens in our system. And federal courts, six of them, have signed off on what I just did. Now, I like to think that most prosecutors wouldn't play that part, but if they need to, they can. But I think it's a disgrace. Because why? Because it is absolutely coercive. That's more coercive than torture. I mean, I don't know how you feel about your dad. I don't like mine. <laughs> but uh, so we wouldn't want to see him go to federal prison. And that would be another example where if somebody put that deal in front of me, I'd be like, all right, you got me. I mean, I didn't do it, but, but I'll plead guilty. I'm certainly not going to be the person who, who uh, you know, through my obstinacy and insisting on my constitutional right to a jury trial. How quaint, you know, maybe I can be that guy with a feather in my head and be like, oh, come on, chaps, let's do a jury trial. <laughs> you know? um, so I'll wrap up by saying this not all uh, plea bargaining is inherently coercive. And except, I mean, I'll do this in the QA, I think, because I don't have time right now, but <laughs> there is a good argument to be made, and I linked to it in my Twitter page, which I'll, I'll put up here uh, later. Uh, there is actually a pretty good argument that plea bargaining is unconstitutional in Texas. Here's why Article 1, Section 10 of the uh, Texas Bill of Rights uh, reads, rights of the accused in criminal prosecution. And that's just the type, that's not <coughs> the actual language of the Constitution, Texas Constitution. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall have a speedy trial. By an impartial jury shall have. So if I'm a judge and somebody's trying to present me with a, a plea bargain, I'm like, did he have a trial? No? Okay, well then there can't be a conviction because the language says the accused shall have a speedy trial. That's not a right. That's a description of the only way to obtain a conviction in Texas, in my judgment. But I don't want to I don't want to dwell on that because it's that's a technical interpretation of some language. There's actually uh, two cases from the Houston Court of Appeals uh, where there's been two judges that said, no, it's, that's the wrong reading, and one judge said, no, it's the only reading. Put that aside. Let's just go back to plea bargaining the way it's done, you know, and not worry about the specific textual language in Texas, although we can do that later. The problem I have with plea bargaining is there are no safety risks. There is nothing that prevents prosecutors from applying those levers that I described to you in a way that is coercive. I'm not saying they always do it. I'm saying they can always do it. And we have a system where prosecutors now expect that virtually any defendant can be induced eventually to plead guilty with the application of that pressure. We have a judiciary that is completely checked out and makes no effort whatsoever to determine whether a particular guilty plea uh, was coerced, uh, except that they do like an allocution where they go, hey, did anybody coerce you? Because if you say yes, you don't get the deal. So the answer is 
No, no. Right. Okay, great. Okay, so good. Um, that's not a serious uh, way of, of protecting people from the coercive uh, pressure that can be applied, and I submit is nearly always applied when necessary. Maybe some people just agree to plead guilty right off the bat. You don't need to coerce them. But eventually, if you hold out, they'll apply whatever pressure it takes. And I think that's wrong. Thanks. Okay. So uh, the state you just heard was talking about the way he thinks the system works. So let me tell you from the perspective of someone who worked in the system for 30 years. And I can tell you that what he has described and what really happens, there's no relationship. There's none whatsoever. He talks about the need for a trial. I will tell you that the way a plea is done, it's actually done. And I've been involved in tens of thousands of pleas, either directly or as a supervisor of people that go to court every day and do pleas as a prosecutor. And it basically is a mini trial. People don't just come in there and plead guilty. There has to be evidence presented, at least as far as Texas goes. And so what has to happen is there is an indictment read and the defendant, after signing at least a dozen pages of rights that admonish him about everything he has the right to do. You have the right to demand a trial. You have a right to compel the state to call witnesses. All of those done away. And then there's verbal admonishments, the last of which is, are you pleading guilty because you are guilty and for no other reason? And this may shock you, but the reason 95%, and I think that may be a conservative number, of the defendants, at least in the state courts, are pleading guilty is because they are guilty. The process of bringing charges against an individual and getting it to that point, if you had actually worked in the system, if you'd actually been a prosecutor working in the intake section, reviewing cases presented, kicking back cases that don't have sufficient evidence, you would know that it is not in the interest of a prosecutor to bring cases where there's evidence of innocence. And if you want a tool that's going to protect that from happening, that is going to make sure a prosecutor has all the information they need, you can't ask for a better tool than plea bargaining. Because if I understood correctly, what has been suggested is that rights are something you can force someone to exercise even if they don't want to. It is not in the interest of a criminal defendant who is guilty of something to, to demand a jury trial. It is just not in their interest. Don't take my word for it. I spoke to a number of career defense attorneys just to make sure I wasn't off somewhere on this point. And they unanimously agreed that the plea bargaining function, the ability for two qualified lawyers to have a discussion, for me to present my evidence and share everything, which I will do, and for the defense to share what they want to and to share mitigating information I may not have and present that information to me can result in a plea bargain. And let me go further. What has not been done so far is defining what a plea bargain is. So again, those of you that have not yet taken my Texas criminal practice and procedure class, let me explain to you what a plea bargain is. A plea bargain is the process by which a person's been charged with a crime. And the range of things that can be done as part of that plea bargain, they start with as low as a dismissal, which is probably the best outcome a defendant can hope for. And at the higher end, having an agreement as to a range of years. We, you, your law school is in a state where the range of punishment for certain first degree felonies is from five to 99 years or life. So if a person believes they have committed a crime, if they do not have any hope of not being convicted, the opportunity to have a plea bargain 
where they have an opportunity to plead to the lower range of punishment or possibly even to a different crime that does not involve prison time is important. That's what happens, the plea bargaining process. And I'm not gonna deny that prosecutors have power. There's no doubt about that. But let me tell you what else prosecutors have that nobody, he certainly doesn't have, and that's to take an oath to do justice. The only lawyers that practice in this country that take an oath to see that justice is done is prosecutors. So you can look at that one of two ways. You can say, well, that's just words. It doesn't mean anything. They don't follow that. Or you can listen to the perspective of someone who took that oath. And there is nothing that would compel me to take a case, even to trial, where there was compelling evidence of innocence. If a defense attorney comes to me and says, my client is not guilty, and we have a disagreement as to the evidence, there is no plea bargain coming. The only outcome for that is going to be a jury trial. We don't take innocent people to trial consciously. Have there been people that have been wrongly convicted? Absolutely, it has happened. It is a statistical small number compared to the greater number of cases that are out there. And as someone who has served on the Texas Forensic Science Commission and sat across the table from the Innocence Project, <coughs> let me share something with you. It's not about prosecutors and plea bargaining. That's not results in this. It's based upon racial prejudice and bias. It's based upon bad science. It's based upon bad representation. And I don't know any defense attorneys that are going to let a client that has insisted that they are not guilty, plead guilty to an offense. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I'm saying that I sat across the table and stood in rooms like this in trials against good defense attorneys, and they were not going to let that happen. So that's part of the reality of it as well. Any system that you have in this country can be abused. There's no question about that. But to take a small number of examples and extrapolate from that, that people aren't being done justice, just doesn't make any sense. And forcing a person who doesn't want to exercise their right to a jury trial and telling them you have to go to trial. Well, let's 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 imagine the world without plea bargaining. You can you'll be faced, you'll be charged with a crime, and there'll be no resolution of that crime. If you want a trial, good luck. It's going to take decades for that case to come up. Because yes, the system is crowded. And that is an incentive for prosecutors to offer better deals to defense attorneys on behalf of their clients. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, it, and his plea offers or plea bargains coercive? I, I don't have any problem with that. Of course they're coercive. Of course they are. Being something, the fact that something is, has a coercive element to it is not unique. How can it not be considered possibly coercive? Someone is facing life in prison. I'm offering them a lesser charge and I'm offering them deferred adjudication for that charge. That brings pressure upon them. Coercion is not necessarily bad. Look. I became a grandfather two weeks ago. I looked at the picture of my new granddaughter and believe me, I was coerced. I am willing to give up every single, every, all my money, everything I own, everything for this child that does nothing but poop and sleep, okay? So that has a coercive effect upon me. But plea bargaining provides an option and that option is important. And for, for the system to be as bad as described, it basically, I guess, means that not defense attorneys, not judges, not prosecutors, that, that we're all we're all in collusion about this. We're all coercing this. Can, he mentioned bringing up extra charges. Absolutely. 
it is possible to decide to bring additional charges. And it is, and it is something that happens occasionally where someone is told, look, we just found out you had some priors. Here's the charge right now. I can indict you and I can bring those other charges to bear or you can plead to this charge. And what's wrong with that? If a person does commit a crime and they have committed repeated crimes and the legislature in this state has said, these are the consequences. People that continually commit crimes face more punishment than people that don't. And so we have an opportunity to enforce that. And in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. Plea bargaining is not a deadly, dangerous, subversive process. Prosecutors are not conviction-hungry, win-at-arrow-cost individuals. That's not, and again, this is not unique. It's not the first time I've heard that. Believe me, if this is the profession you're choosing, don't go into it for the thanks and pats on the back. But going into the profession and taking your oath seriously and wanting to do justice and having the ability and the power to give people another chance, the ability to do something no one else can do. You want your jury trial? That's fine. With deferred adjudication, a non-conviction probation, that's off the table. A plea and bar for one of the charge cases you were charged with, that's off the table. You're a little embarrassed about um, what you did? You'd rather not have everybody find out about it? Well, congratulations. You're going to trial. And if it's a slow news day, everybody's going to hear about what you did. If there's a coercive element as to plea bargaining, it's in the knowledge of the person who is charged of their guilt. And knowledge of guilt is coercive. Knowledge of guilt is corrosive. It affects an individual. I've learned that over time from the number of defendants against all logic who have accepted and pled guilty and admitted their guilt even before we get the case. An individual who commits a crime under the laws of this state, under the laws of this country, as an option. They can negotiate a plea. They can demand a trial. I will tell you that for the last 15 years of my career, I didn't offer any plea offers. Every case I had, because I had it, was going to be a trial. And I was called coercive. I got more backlash from that, from my colleagues on the other side. They thought I was totally unfair. And I just told them, look, I'm just giving your client a right to a jury trial. Let's just see what the jury of their peers has to say about this offense. People who are charged with crimes, the numbers of checks and balances, which I won't go into, but take my class, we'll talk about it. <laughs> there are checks and balances. It is not a perfect system. But the answer is not throwing away plea bargaining. Because you know there's another group that is absolutely innocent in this whole process. And those are the victims of crime. And they're going to suffer as well, especially with what we're facing right now, with the backlog of cases because of COVID. You tell those victims, well, every person charged, whether they want it or not, has to have a place in the docket. They have to have a jury trial whether they want one or not then their justice may never come. So again, plea bargaining does protect the rights of individuals. Lawyers who take oaths oversee it. Judges who take other oaths and have other obligations have to agree and approve it. 
And the Supreme Court of the United States has said it's correct. And the Supreme Court of the United States has said that some coercive aspects of plea bargaining, which again, I believe are self-evident, are not improper. If you keep in your mind the possibility, or in my belief, the near certainty that these people, that 95% that are charged with crimes, are charged with crimes because they've committed crimes, then I think you'll be able to sleep a little better with the idea there's a little coercive pressure being bought, brought to bear so that they will plead and take responsibility for their actions and we can open those trial places up for people that really need their trials. I don't want you to sleep well tonight. I want you to look up Troy Mansfield. Troy Mansfield was 25 years old, lives in Williamson County, just north of Austin. 1992, his four-year-old son and three-year-old son had a play date with a four-year-old neighbor. Troy was messing around with the kids. He's 25 years old. The four-year-old daughter, the four-year-old girl went home to her mom and said, um, that man touched me inappropriately. I'm going to skip over what happened because you're going to read it. It beat him, not literally, but the way I've described, to plead guilty. He refused because he was innocent. <coughs> his case was set for trial six times. And they told him, if you're convicted, you will never see the outside of a prison cell. But they finally offered him a deal he couldn't refuse. 10 years probation. If he would agree to plead guilty and go on the sex offender registry, they destroyed his life. Destroyed it. <clears throat> About 20 years later, he hired a lawyer after they discovered that the Williamson County Prosecutor's Office was rotten to the court um, after the exoneration of a man named Michael Morton. She fought for six months to get the files from the prosecutor. Ask yourself a question, why do you have to fight for six months to get files from a prosecutor's office? Well, they did. You know why they had to fight for six months? Because those notes contain interviews the prosecutor recorded with the four-year-old girl when they said things like, my daughter's story's all over the place. I can't sponsor this place. Now she's telling me he didn't do it. This is an innocent man who was coerced into pleading guilty to a crime that he didn't commit. Would you keep you awake at night? I'll give you another name, Aaron Schwartz, internet genius, helped invent Reddit when he was 19 years old. <clears throat> Broke into a computer closet at MIT when he was a Harvard grad student because he wanted to hook up a computer program to make the JSTOR database available to the world. Yeah, that was a crime. Physical trespass, he also probably, I don't know, because he never found out, committed some computer crimes. The feds got a hold of that case, and by the time they were done figuring out all, all the different ways they could charge him, he was looking at a 13-count felony indictment it exposed him to 35 years in prison and a $1 million fine. They offered him six months. And we'll never know how that case is going to turn out because it was so stressful to be threatened and coerced that way that he took his own life and hung himself. That's coercion. That's what it looks like when you apply enough pressure. You're also going to look up the, the Houston drug lab scandal tonight. You're trying to find out is that they had a big scandal to use drug lab. Uh, basically what happened was they were using a, a test that they later turned uh, found to be um, defective. Um, and when they brought in a, a legitimate test that actually produced correct results, what they discovered was something like 35% of the people or more who had been charged with drug crimes and pled guilty to them, they didn't even possess drugs. You're gonna go look that up. That happened in this state less than 10 years ago. If you really care, go ahead and look at the National Registry of Exoneration. You'll see that they've uh, identified more than 2,000 people who have been exonerated uh, since 1988. 20%, 20% of those exonerations were coerced guilty pleas. 
The Innocence Project exonerates people using DNA, which is not perfect, but it's as close as we can get in our system. They've exonerated more than 300 people. 10% of those, and these are heinous crimes like rape and murder, 10% of them pled guilty to rapes and murders that they did not commit. And that's indisputable. Now it's true that we don't know what the actual percentage is, in part because our system works so hard to prevent post-exoneration relief. Prosecutors will fight tooth and nail to prevent somebody who has been convicted from testing the DNA from the crime scene when technology advances and they can test it in some way that they weren't able to at the time of the trial. They fight like cats to prevent that from happening so we can't know how many people are coerced, how many innocent people are coerced into pleading guilty. Finally, we talk about these lawyers who take an oath to do justice, and I credit that. I heard that they try to do justice. But prosecutors are subject to well-known cognitive biases that are described in horrifying detail by a former prosecutor named Mark Godsey in a book called Blind Injustice, and that will keep you awake at night. You should read it. He describes in detail, case after case, where obviously innocent people were coerced into pleading guilty. And when they're finally exonerated, you look at it and you think, I can't even imagine how anybody could have thought this person was guilty. It's because of these cognitive biases that our system is persistently uh, indifferent to. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this. Did you know that it's impossible to sue a prosecutor? Yeah. The Supreme Court has invented out a whole cloth, a doctrine called absolute prosecutorial immunity. You won't find it in any statute. They just made it up. And you cannot sue a prosecutor no matter how egregious their conduct. Even if they deliberately frame someone they know to be innocent. And this has happened in a case called Imler v. Packer, went to the Supreme Court. Deliberately frame someone they know to be innocent, fed false evidence to a supposed co-defendant so he could testify more plausibly. Frame somebody for a murder they didn't, they knew that they didn't commit. Two men spent 25 years in prison and were finally exonerated. Nothing happened to those prosecutors. Nothing. They could not be sued. They were not disbarred. They're still practicing law in Iowa. Prosecutors have no skin in the game. No. And I have made this proposal multiple, multiple times. Okay, fine. You want to you play with this coercion dynamic? Why don't you put some skin in the game? Um, this morning, I got on to a 45-ton hunk of metal, shaped like a tube. And I trusted someone I had never met to fly this 45-ton chunk of metal. Texas. That's how certain I was that it could be done. I was willing to risk my life. I didn't even risk my children's life on this thing called commercial aviation because I'm certain they know what they're doing. Prosecutors will tell you that they're certain that people are guilty when they take a, a, a guilty plea, but you ask them to put so much as an ounce of skin in the game and you'll find out they're not certain. I propose, for example, one way to uh, deal with these cognitive biases and to ensure some skin in the game would be to say, fine, if you decide to go the plea bargaining route, the extra constitutional route with no safeguards. And here's what we'll do. If you obtain a guilty plea from someone who is later exonerated and turns out to be innocent, how about you're presumptively disbarred? Or if you, you go to prison. I've never had a prosecutor take me up on this because you know what? In life, there are two things. There's real certainty, which is when I get on an airplane and trust that pilot to fly at the destination without killing me, and there's prosecutor certainty, which is just kind of certain. But if they were really certain, if they were really, really certain that the person from whom they take a guilty plea is guilty, is in fact guilty, then they wouldn't have any problem putting skin in the game. I've never met one who would. Maybe Richard would. I would admire him for that. But prosecutors will not put skin in the game when it comes to 
guilty pleas and the coercion is involved to me, that's a tell. So I guess my first response, I'm gonna share a quote with you. Uh, I, I, know, I know because I've looked it up and I've had a discussion that the organization he works for that has the name Cato in it is not based upon the historical Roman figure Cato. But I think a quote from Cato the Elder is worth listening to. Anger so clouds the mind that it cannot perceive the truth. I, I am fairly confident that I could give you story for story that would get your emotions fired up and make all of you decide that the profession you want as a prosecutor and you want to start tomorrow and you wouldn't be worried about any of the things that he's brought up. But emotion is not the way to make decisions. And the reality is that a handful of cases, do you, do you have any concept of how many cases we're talking about are exposed in the system? I work for the fourth largest county in Texas. Every year, 20 to 25,000 misdemeanor cases were disposed of. Add to that another eight to 10,000 felony cases. And that's in the fourth largest county in Texas. And he wants to toss up a handful of examples. Examples happen. I don't dispute that there have been mistakes made. I don't dispute that this is a problem. As far as prosecutors not doing anything about it, again, he's just uninformed. There isn't a major office in Texas that doesn't have a conviction integrity unit, a unit devoted simply to one task, to going through and examining prior convictions and looking to see if there are errors. They exist. The Innocence Project turns away more guilty people than they find innocent people. Every time we found some bad science and we would get reports from the Innocence Project, they do a tremendous job, but they are the last group that is gonna tell you that the prisons are overflowing with innocent people. That is just not the case. That is a myth. Cognitive bias is being taught at every seminar in Texas right now. It's not, we're not strangers to that. It is not being ignored. And, but again, it is much easier to, to call it, to bring this boogeyman out of this wrongfully convicted and extrapolate from that with some broad language that says, who knows how many more examples there are. And, and that is just not logical. That doesn't make any sense. Cato, Cato would say that that is wrong. That is not how rational people make decisions. You don't apply emotions. There's a place for that. It's called the punishment phase of a criminal case but it doesn't belong in a debate. There are injustices, there are wrongs that are done, but it's not the problem of the system. No matter what system you have, you're going to have individuals who are a problem and the system should ferret those people out. And in one of the cases he's talking about, there, there's, a, there's a former judge that lost, lost his reputation, <coughs> lost his ability to make a living and his name's ruined forever. And I don't know about you, but when I was raised, what my father told me is the most precious thing I have is my reputation, is my name. And I wouldn't want to lose that for anything. So they are being held accountable. There's not enough time to talk about how ridiculous and dangerous it would be to take away prosecutorial immunity from group attorneys that on a regular basis are prosecuting people that are criminals who have all the time in the world to bring suits against them in prison. And they do it. Logic and reason. Plea bargaining is not the problem. You can't make someone take a right they don't want to exercise. Uh, sorry, Major. I have a question, Mr. Keeley. Yeah. Uh, how would the Houston Drug Lab 
uh, situation have turned out differently had the defendants uh, demanded a jury trial if that had later turned out the same way? Yeah, so what, the problem in that case was that they were using a field test um, to make the initial determination, and the field test was, was bent, didn't work. Um, what would happen if they went to trial is that there would have been an actual you know, reliable lab test, and it would have excluded some of those results. In fact, apparently a lot of those results. Um, so essentially what you're using is you're kind of using this slap and dash, you know, kind of probable cause type of test out in the field. Um, and people just, you know, they didn't want to be, most of these people knew they were going to be locked up pre-trial and not be able to make bail and get out. Um, and they were just like, look, I mean, you know, if you just want to do low level, uh, drug possession, even though I didn't actually possess one, I'll, I'll, I'll cop to that. And, you know, I just don't want to be in jail for a year or two, um, to litigate this. So, you know, that was the problem there is that they were relying on an unreliable field test. And if they had gone to trial, they would have had to use a reliable actual lab test. I had a question about uh, an earlier point raised about uh, removing a plea bargaining would uh, clog the, the system, the, the docket become clogged with the two cases coming through. Uh, I have two questions about one was about a right to a speedy trial and that not run afoul of that. And the second question I had was more of a, a design of the system. Um, I was wondering, it seems the efficiency of the docket isn't, shouldn't be a, a primary uh, objective of our justice system and giving everyone a, their day in court uh, just seems to me like a higher priority than the uh, than the efficiency. I was wanting to comment on that. Asking me? I, I, I think either of you can comment on okay. anything to say. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was focused on the second point. The first point you had was about? I was asking about a, a right to a speedy trial. That right, okay. First of all, I mean, the right to a speedy trial, at least in Texas courts, I mean, there is a right to it. And, and the reality is, is what I'm talking about, if we actually did away with plea bargaining, then there would be enough, there would be thousands upon thousands of people that eventually the time and the time would pass that they would be deprived of a speedy trial. Not to mention the ruined lives of the victims of those crimes, who also would never have an opportunity to see some kind of justice. As far as efficiency of trials, again, um, it, I think the argument applies to everything. If, if we tried to build enough courtrooms and hire enough prosecutors and find enough defense attorneys to get everybody charged with a crime a trial, it is just literally impossible. And it's not the only area. I mean, you might as well talk about people that don't have the ability to get the medical care that they want because there's not enough hospitals in their area. There's not enough doctors treating them. So yeah, as far as efficiency go, plea bargaining is a relatively efficient system. There are dockets devoted to plea offers and, and as opposed to trials to open up dockets that are strictly there for trials. So uh, that's that's my response to it. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this. Tell me your name. Christopher Swift. Thanks, Christopher, for bringing this up. So, so this is a, a standard response. You know, the system would grind you a halt without uh, plea bargaining. Well, no, we. <laughs> um, we'd have to make different decisions about priorities and, and expenditures, right? We, we'd probably see more cases decline and, and probably have to throw some more money into the system. Um, I did a kind of a funny thing about six months into COVID. I actually sat down and counted up how many criminal offenses I committed. Um, and I stopped when I got to about 35. I'm like one of the only drug-free libertarians you'll ever meet. So it wasn't even drug stuff. Um, my, kids wanted to, uh, my kids wanted to do archery. And so I got them a little kid bow and arrow. And it turns out that was a criminal offense every time we went out the front yard and did that. Uh, my wife and I committed a criminal offense on Halloween alone with every neighbor uh, in our cul-de-sac because we were all drinking a beer. <laughs> that's, that's illegal. I got a neighbor who's got a really loud Mustang. I know exactly when he goes to work, 530. Um, <laughs> and uh, he commits a criminal offense every morning when he turns on his car because he buys 
homeless and noise ordinance. My best, my favorite one was with my uh, neighbor, the retired DC homicide detective who came over to tell me that I was committing a criminal offense when I was doing archery with my kids in my front yard. I actually looked at the, the you know, looked it up to see if he was right, he was. Um, but then I found out he was committing criminal offenses every time he shows a movie on the side of his house because I can hear the movie from inside my house, which is a criminal offense. So you get the point. <laughs> so we criminalize so much conduct in this country that we have all, I mean, not you, but like, you know, people like me um, have committed um, dozens, if not hundreds of, of, of offenses for which we can be convicted. And that puts us in a really tough position. Like, should we want to see, like, would it be ideal if all of those were prosecuted? Like, would the world be a better place if, if, I, if I got put in jail for teaching my kids archery in the front yard? I don't think so, right? But then you have to decide, well, who are you going to prosecute? If not everybody, what subset of offenses? And that turns out to be a really tough question. Um, we do have mass incarceration in this country, by the way. We, we are world-leading jailers. We have 5% of the world's population, 25% of its prisoners. Um, we're like six to eight times higher rates of incarceration than any other liberal democracy, which kind of embarrasses me. Here's what I would say about trials and why, and one of the big things besides, I think, the, the dangers of coercive plea bargaining, um, I think trials are really beautiful because guess what? Taking away somebody's freedom and putting them in a cage, that's a really big deal. And if you're not willing to spend the money that it takes to do that and ask 12 people to take time away from their families and, and their work to come and do that, then maybe you're not serious enough to put a human being in a cage. And maybe that's a real nice constitutional gut check that we just ripped. So yeah, we got mass incarceration. Part of the reason we've got mass incarceration is because we're getting convictions at pennies on the constitutional dollar because we're not giving people their jury trials. If we had to take every case involving incarceration to trial, which I think we should, I'll bet we'd find out that we actually don't want as many convictions as we're getting in this country if we had to pay the full break for them. I'm certain that we would. Professor Ryan. Yeah. Thanks, guys, both for coming. Um, we all appreciate your time. Well, I want to seize on the 95% number that prosecutors are mostly good people, that most of them want to do the right thing. I certainly know that our colleague here uh, is in that category. If 95% of the time it goes down like it's supposed to, that still leaves to me one out of 20 that doesn't. One out of 20, even if it's one out of 100, the problem is we don't trust executive discretion to the good nature of the person who takes the oath, nor do we allow a branch to check itself internally by saying, well, we have a division where the police are going to investigate whether it was okay for them to knock down your door. Right? That doesn't comfort me with my civil liberties. And so what I hear on both sides is an acknowledgement that, yes, nobody's saying it's always bad, that it's always coercive. That's not the argument today. But the argument seems to be that the potential for it, right, we put in place procedural safeguards to protect against the people who would abuse their discretion. And the fact that most people aren't going to run up against the safeguards doesn't seem to me like the reason to remove them because those people are unaffected, right? Because they weren't going to bump up against them anyway. But why not have safeguards in place that, that target these specific kinds of abuses that make sure we can catch those 5% with the safeguards and leave the other 95% untouched? And it can be for either person. You know, I mean, again, let's not misunderstand the 95%. 95% of people are pleading guilty. Um, a sizable percentage of the remaining 5%, maybe 2 to 3% that are tried, the vast majority of those are being found guilty as two. Um, my conviction rate as a prosecutor was just around 95%, okay? And those were all jury trials that I'm talking about. So my first comment would be that 
just that 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 five percent doesn't mean that those are people that are run afoul of the system. If you added up every single verified case of exoneration and and misconduct, um, you wouldn't even get to a tenth of a hundredth of one percent of the total number of cases prosecuted in this country. And I would say there are safeguards in place to avoid that. There are safe there are checks and balances that are available at the police department level and at the DA's office level. And of course, we have judges and defense attorneys keeping us in check at every turn. And, and let's not forget, everybody has a right to demand a jury trial. And if there is any, and there are individuals out there that did not commit the crime and is not a situation where there can be agreement between the parties that this was not an offense, they have the ability to get a jury trial and because of plea bargaining, their odds of getting the trial in less than five years is a lot higher. So I think there are checks and balances against that, but just like any profession, checks and balances for doctors don't prevent bad surgeries. Checks and balances for pilots don't prevent drunk pilots from crashing planes because it's a thing, it happens. So there's just a limit to what you're expecting out there. And, and that would be my response. But we do but we do have rules that say pilots can do this, can't do this. If they do, you can sue if you don't go to jail. And here is how we're going to measure their conduct. We don't say, well, they promised they'd fly good and we trust them. Right. But but it doesn't mean the people that were in that plane that crashed into the ground any good that the pilot who's also dead violated some of the rules on there. I, I, again, there are guidelines on there, but when we're talking at a certain level, you've either got to have no faith in human nature and again, believe that the stereotype that there is a group of professionals out there that ignore their oath and just seek convictions at all costs, just one another notch on their pistol, or you got to believe that they're conscientious. And, and the trouble is, and the reason this dialogue is allowed to go as far as it does, is that the conscientious actions of prosecutors don't make the newspaper. The things that I've observed on a daily basis and that I've participated in on a daily basis are not observed. Um, the county I worked at would not indict a person without a actual lab test. I'm not a fan of the presumptive test. I think the same thing happened in Dallas, but the man I worked for would not allow a case to go to a charge level until we did a full lab report. So Tarrant County has never had a fake lab scan while it was there. And again, when those things happened, they looked to Tarrant County and that became the model for these things. So there is some correction, but to expect correction without mistakes is just a standard that no other profession and no other part of this country is held to, and it's unrealistic. Uh, anybody remember that Enron thing? Oh. <laughs> All right, I guess you do. Does anybody know uh, how many of the convictions uh, that the government obtained through a mechanism other than guilty pleas stood up? In other words, how many of the uh, convictions that the government obtained after taking a case to trial held up? Almost none. Almost none. Uh, they brought a bogus claim against Arthur Anderson. The Supreme Court shot it down. Um, they had uh, Ken Skilling, his conviction down re uh, reversed, I recall correctly. Uh, a number of the executives who were getting So basically what the government did was it used a bunch of exotic theories. Most of the people were browbeaten into pleading guilty. How many of them were innocent? How many of them would have been vindicated if they had taken their case to the Supreme Court like Arthur Anderson did, do you know? I don't know. 
I just know that of the cases that the uh, that, that uh, were litigated to the Supreme Court in the Enron, most of them ended up getting reversed because the government was too far too creative in its charging decisions. Anybody uh, remember the Yates case from the Supreme Court about 10 years ago? The commercial fishing boat uh, captain out of Florida got uh, stopped by a federal wildlife uh, agent who thought that some of his fish were too small. So she said, I need you to uh, preserve those fish, meet me back in port, and we'll take a look at the, the, the full you know, haul. Um, and the allegation was that when he, on his way back to, to, to the dock, he threw the undersized fish overboard. Anybody remember what they charged him with? Document destruction under Sarbanes-Oxley. Yeah, there was another statute they could have charged him with, which is the one he actually, the offense he actually committed if he did that. Uh, but they didn't want that one because Sarbanes-Oxley, that was a 20, I think it was a 20 year sentence as opposed to like six months and $500 fine. So they hammered him with Sarbanes-Oxley. What did the Supreme Court do? Anybody remember? Reverse. You guys got too creative. So um, trials turn out to be a really good way to find out, for example, if the government's getting too creative in its charging decisions. But when people plead guilty, we don't get to find out. Um, Cliven Bundy, anybody remember that guy? Remember this name? Bunch of crazy, you, you remember, uh, tell me your name. No, I no, no, the guy in the green behind you. Oh, uh, he's the Nevada rancher guy. That is one way to put it. Uh, he was told to get his cattle off the government land because he wasn't paying to graze them. Um, and, 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 and thank you. The, uh, so anyway, he, um, uh, to make a long story short, um, he was charged with fomenting a, you know, a riot basically because he put out the word that people should, should uh, arm themselves to come and help protect his family. Um, and you know, they tried to get him to plead guilty and he didn't. Um, and his argument was, look, they had snipers on the edge of my property. They were putting high resolution uh, cameras all around my property, et cetera, et cetera. You know what the prosecution said? Oh, come on, don't do that. Ridiculous, we weren't setting you up for an ambush. Then there was a whistleblower with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and guess what he said? That's exactly what we were doing, 100%. Um, that case was dismissed with prejudice, and that result was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit because the government lied in court about uh, a fact that, that was material to his defense. Do you know how often that happens in cases where there's been a guilty plea? Nope. Will you ever find out? Nope. There are really good reasons, really good reasons why the Constitution says that the correct method for adjudicating criminal charges is a public jury trial. Uh, so I have a question for both of you. Um, considering that the standard for indictments currently is like essentially probable cause, and several other European countries like Denmark have raised that standard for indictments to uh, beyond reasonable doubt. Considering that the indictment process is a non-adversarial process, do you think what would be your opinion on raising the standard to beyond reasonable doubt in the United States? Do you think that would cross the course or do you think it would be better? Put not your faith. In grand juries that are done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but read this book, Cardiac Arrest. Um, this was a lawyer who um, became president of a medical device company in Minnesota. He was tried for um, uh, white collar crimes uh, over in San Antonio in front of the judge that I clerked for, as it happens. Um, he was elected because his board of directors authorized him to spend $25 million on his defense. Um, when the federal government came after him uh, on bogus charges uh, of um, uh, basically uh, um, selling his medical devices for unapproved uses. Um, I think the single most harrowing story in the book uh, 
is, and this was all documented at trial, um, is when the, um, uh, we usually don't find out what happens in grand juries, but because this case went to trial and the government called um, as a witness, a woman who had been brought before the grand jury, she was one of his executives, we found out that her experience was this. The government had a pretty exotic theory about how this guy, Howard Root, had supposedly you know, committed a crime um, and required you know, buying into certain interpretations. So they took this woman and they sat her down before they put her in the grand jury and said, look, this is our theory of the case. And according to our theory of the case, would you agree that your boss is a crook? And she's like, well, I, you know, I, I, we didn't see it that way. We actually sought legal counsel. And we, they just didn't see that framework. So they put her in front of the grand jury, asked her, hey, your boss is a crook, right? And she says, you know, you asked me that question before, and I just don't see it that way. Time out. They took her out in the hall, and they said, hey, you know what? Our investigation is not finished yet. We haven't decided who we're going to indict. We might indict more executives from this company. Would you like to go back in front of the grand jury and have this question again? Yeah, I would, actually. Back in front of the grand jury. Your boss is a crook, isn't he? Uh-huh. And the, the jury was so disgusted when that came out that one of the foremen went up to the defendant after they quitted and said, I, I had no idea. Right. So um, the grand jury is captured, and we almost never find out what happens inside the grand jury. I hope nothing like what I just described happens routinely, but I have no idea, and neither do you. So what we call a prosecutor that accepts filing of a case or presents a case to the grand jury when all the evidence he has is probable cause is an ex-prosecutor. When we accept a case at filing, we are accepting a case with the eye towards, we are endorsing that this is a proper charge and we are prepared to take it for trial. The state has to announce ready when there's an indictment. It has to announce ready when there's a filing. A case is presented to a court. So it may not be in the law textbook, but the reality is, and, and again, and I, and I taught this reality to new prosecutors for two decades in Tarrant County, is that if you're looking at a case from an intake level, then you better be sure that we can prove that case with the evidence we have beyond a reasonable doubt. Because if you aren't, then that case should be rejected, which might give you some idea as to why that 95% number is the way it is. Because it is not, it, it is not probable cause. That is not an intake of a DA's office standard. And, and just so it's clear, you know, not that these cases he's talking about are not are not tragic in the way they, they dealt with, but I'm not talking about unique theory cases. I'm talking about a 45-year-old man putting his penis in the vagina of a five-year-old girl. I'm talking about people that regularly seek out and beat elderly people when they're coming out of stores to take their purses. I'm talking about real crime here. And whatever crimes he's committed, I'm pretty sure that they'd be handled in JP court. And I don't care how crowded the JP court docket is. He's got to reach a level of BA misdemeanor or felonies. And, and I really hope he's not admitting that he committed felonies because that might change my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'm a career prosecutor. I, I, believe in, I believe the laws need to be followed. And I don't find it amusing that he admits he committed crimes. Yeah, I'll try to find you question. Um, so we had a couple of statements earlier. I think we're in agreement that we both have a very high view of human morality. Uh, I think you probably have a higher view of state morality than I do. Uh, and so I want to direct this question to you. If you had complete legislative control to craft additional safeguards, how would you do it? And, and, and the frame of the question is that it seems that this plea bargain that we're talking about uh, exists at this, this, this point of mutual agreement between two opposite forces, the state's force of a desired prosecution. 
and the accused force of desiring to escape pain, penalty, punishment until they come to an agreement. Um, like all, all economic forces, when you throttle one, the other expands. And it seems that there's not as much throttling in your language tonight that seems to indicate that you don't think there needs to be as much throttling from the states. So if you were to craft the law to use that term again, throttle the states force opposite the citizens force, what would that structure be? See, the problem with the, the problem with the concept is at, at its core, we're talking about forcing people that want to plead guilty and telling them they cannot do so. And I don't know a mechanism to fix that. I think that what, what the prosecutors do and what happens at seminars where they're trained on a regular basis is an emphasis on ethics. Um, the number of ethics hours prosecutors have to have and have to go through to be exposed to these concepts grows every session. And I don't know a mechanism. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying the system doesn't have problems, but I don't know a mechanism that would do that. I would not want any laws passed that would deprive an individual charged with a crime of the ability to admit their guilt. Because again, you know, statistically speaking, the majority of those exonerations he talked about had jury trials. So let's be honest here. Juries are not perfect at determining guilt. In fact, statistically speaking, a smaller percent were, were not guilty that pled guilty. So if we're going to just do basic math, which is not my area, because it's not why I became a lawyer to do it. But again, there's, there's, no, there's nothing perfect about jury system. I mean, I'm a big fan of it. I've had a lot of jury trials, but they're not perfect. And, they're, and, the, and, the, and the bottom line is that they're, they're, good science has made it very much easier to be sure about our convictions, but there's always going to be crimes where there's not going to be an absolute. And the day we require absolute will be the day that we just basically just say our children are just, we'll just put them out of the wind because the, the law, we've breached standard where the law says the word of a child against someone without the ability to have forensic evidence to support it is not enough. And, and unfortunately, certain crimes whose circumstances are created by the criminals committing those crimes don't lend themselves to witnesses. So I don't see a process without doing what is he's suggesting. And I, I, I can't, I just can't agree to anything that's going to interfere with a person's ability to plead. I mean, 15 more pages of admonishments, having judges that oversee what judges do. And again, a person that pleads guilty and is not guilty does have avenues. At the very least, they can talk about it. And if the number was as great as it's being described, that would be all we hear. We're a news-hungry environment. And I'm sorry, I just don't see the multitudes, specific, unique examples aside of people that are saying, oh my God, I pled guilty and I shouldn't have done so. And honestly, the, I, and, and that may be one change I would have. If the prosecutor and the defense and the judge all want someone to be able to be exonerated, I'd be in favor of that because that is not possible in a certain system. And I've, I've never understood that. I've never understood why a prosecutor saying someone um, should not have been convicted, the defense attorney saying it, the trial judge says it, and the court puts a roadblock. So I guess maybe that would be one of the answers to kind of grease the wheels and have someone come out because it shouldn't take as long as it takes. And part of the process is there are too many obstacles, legally speaking, when both sides agree that someone should be exonerated. Um, do we have a math person in the room? Oh, all right, well, I guess you guys are all large majors like me. Um, 
So yeah, all human institutions are imperfect, but let's not for a minute think that we can equate error rates with jury trials with plea bargaining. Here's why. Um, what percentage of innocent people who go to trial would you estimate are convicted in our vaunted system where we have adversarial uh, uh, you know, confrontation and, and, and the ability to confront the witnesses against you and so forth? I would guess that fewer than 50%, I would guess actually a lot less than 50% of innocent people who go to trial end up getting convicted. What percentage, and you really don't have to be a math major for this one, what percentage of innocent people who plead guilty end up getting convicted? It's a pretty round number. What is it? Oh, 100%. It's 100%. That's the difference between those two adjudicative mechanisms. 100% of people who are of innocent people who are coerced and pleading guilty get convicted. Actually, it's like 99.99999% because Mike Flynn pled guilty and didn't get convicted, but let's put that aside. Anyway, um, and you know what? I'm just going to get up here and be loud and proud about my commission of certain felonies. <laughs> my brother-in-law came back from Iraq, two combat tours in Iraq with a brain injury and something he shouldn't have brought back from the theater. And we let him stay in our house because he was messed up. And that thing he shouldn't have had, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, it was illegal. And he left it there when he went off to college on the GI Bill. And therefore, I was in possession of it. That's a felony. He's dead now. I don't regret it. I'll do it again. I'll tell you a funnier story. David Gregory, newscaster, wanted to illustrate um, what a large capacity magazine looks like, um, which are banned in Washington, DC, where he does his newscast from. In fact, it's a felony to possess one. So the producer of his show went to the DC Attorney General and said, hey, my on-air talent wants to brandish a high capacity magazine on the show so people can see what it looks like. Would that be a crime? And the DC Attorney General said, yeah, it's a felony. What do you think they did? They did it anyway, right? And the DC Attorney General's office is like, oh, you asked and we said no, but then you did it anyway. What should happen to him? What should happen? Yeah, of course he should be prosecuted. You think he would have been prosecuted if he was a black kid in Anastasia? Yeah. Was he prosecuted? Yeah, of course not, right? So um, we have trivialized the concept of crime in this country. And there are plenty of felonies um, that nobody takes seriously. And I'll tell you what, if I lived in New Jersey, which has the oldest and broadest assault weapons ban in the country, and I decided I wanted to own an AR-15, I would tell them to take that law and pound it right up where the sun doesn't shine. Just like 97% of people in New Jersey want to own an assault weapon too, because it's an unjust law. And you, in my opinion, don't have any obligation to follow it. And part of the reason we know it's unjust and stupid is because they make no effort to enforce it against, at least against certain people. So um, there are certainly felonies that you can commit with a clear conscience. I have, I don't necessarily encourage it, um, but I'm simply saying um, that we have reached a point in this country, at least in my judgment, where we have so trivialized the concept of what is a crime that um, it's not unreasonable for you to pick and choose at least some of those. So, Thank you. I'm like part of hearing, so that's okay. actually really helpful. Um, so you spoke about prosecutorial certainty, and I want to see how you think that is different than the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. Because if we're saying that prosecutorial certainty isn't enough, and but a beyond a reasonable doubt is, I don't understand how there's a difference there. And if if there is, how prosecutorial certainty isn't greater than beyond a reasonable doubt? Because I don't believe it. I don't believe it for a minute. And the reason I don't believe it is because every time I um, propose having them put, this, put skin in the game, I put skin in the game today when I got on that 45-ton hunk of metal, didn't I? I put skin in the game because I really was certain. 
that, 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 that I could fly. Think about that. I'm flying, literally. I was 25,000 feet in the air going 500 miles an hour in a 45-ton chunk of metal. But I was certain. But what's, what's in the jury's they don't have any skin in the game. They don't need to because they're not the ones. They are following the constitutionally prescribed procedure. They are participating in it. They're not the ones who proposed to, hey, let's do this kind of janky guardrail free one. Prosecutors are proposing to do that. They're the ones who make the plea offer. Um, and so my response to that is, look, anytime, in any human setting, you know, if you're going to cut corners. So, for example, that same plane that I flew on. My dad's an aerospace engineer, so I know that they fly with an extra fuel load in case there's weather or some other problem they can make it to another airport. Is that efficient? No, it's not. So now imagine we have a, a situation where there's an airline that's the efficient airline. We could call it, I don't know, Frontier or something. Um, <laughs> and they do no extra fuel load because it's, it's efficient and it really would be, right? And the other thing they don't do is put a co-pilot in the cockpit. They just hope the pilot doesn't have an issue, right? And that would be efficient. I mean, you could probably cut the cost of a ticket in half at that point. Would you fly on that plane? <laughs> I'm, no, I'm asking, would you fly on a plane that was carrying zero extra fuel and no co-pilot? I don't know enough about planes to be able to Okay, you're dodging the question. All right, show of hands. Everybody who would fly on a plane with no co-pilot and zero extra fuel load, raise your hands. Skydiving. <laughs> Commercial aviation. <laughs> Right? The answer is nobody, because you're not idiots, right? You and, and 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 if the company said, hey, let's do that for efficiency, you know what I would say? I would say whichever executive made the decision to go with zero extra fuel load and no co-pilot, you could be in the front row. And then we'll know if you really think it's safe to fly that plane. And if, if the executive who made that decision is like, oh no, 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 I'm not, no, that's for other people, then you know that that executive is not really certain. And when you ask prosecutors to put skin in the game, if they take a plea bargain and they all say no, then in my opinion, what they're really showing you is that they're not certain, they're just kind of. It's good enough as long as the defendant's the one with the skin in the game, but the second you ask them to put skin in the game and say, you know what, if that defendant's exonerated, you get this bar. I've never heard one that was willing to take that deal. Maybe I'll hear it for the first time tonight. I think that would actually be an incredibly salutary policy because one of the things we would do is, stop, is get prosecutors to stop using plea bargaining for the shaky cases like Yates with that stupid fish. They should have known and they probably did know that they were pushing the envelope with that Sarbanes-Oxley charge, right? Um, so plea bargaining for the slam dunk cases, I have much less of an issue with that. But plea bargaining for the shaky cases, let's see some skin in the game. Professor Alpert, do you have a question? Do you have a comment on prosecutorial certainty versus beyond a reasonable doubt before we close? Um, I guess I'd say that I, I agree with your concept. That I think that the decision that juries juries are imperfect. I mean, there, there's there's just no certainty. And I will tell you, I can I can speak for myself, and I can speak for people that I worked with for three decades. And there there was I convincing myself that there was enough evidence was an extremely high burden. And the skin in the game that I have, as I've said, is my reputation and my desire to continue uh, working in a career that I devoted my life to. And the seriousness that I took the work that I did and the obligation I had to the victims who were depending on me to be around when their cases came to trial. So I feel like sweat, tears, skin, everything about it. Um, every prosecutor every day that walks into court announces ready and, and and takes a case forward to hold someone accountable, they've got skin in the game. Um, you know, again, the argument otherwise is just an argument that they want prosecutors to be vulnerable, 
We want prosecutors to be subject to false attacks. And, and, it's, and such a system would absolutely remove the ability to do the job. And, and there are mechanisms to get rid of that prosecutors. The examples that were stated are proven. That's my answer. All right, thank you. Let's give our two And there you have it. Thanks again for joining us for this special bonus episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Take care.